Anna asked me uh, several weeks ago uh, to talk on a certain topic, and she was like, I want you to show how Moses kind of points us to Christ. And little she, did she know that that's like my like favorite thing to talk about. So she was asking me to talk about something that I really, truly enjoy talking about most, which just means I'm going to have to do my, I'm going to be disciplining myself in terms of ending on time, <laughs> because I could talk about this type of stuff forever. And in fact, the text that I want to take you to, uh, Acts chapter 7, uh, actually took me three weeks to get through. So uh, I don't have three weeks this morning, so I only have a couple of minutes. So I'm going to try and do my best to try to show you exactly what Anna's trying to say and hopefully what we're all trying to say through our lessons as we're teaching to anyone of any age, which is just the simple fact that Everything is about Jesus, and that's not a, 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 a super elementary, or it sounds super elementary to say that, but it actually it's quite profound. And in fact, we would probably say if you were asked the question, right, um, what is the Bible about? You would probably say, oh, it's about Jesus. And yet, sometimes I think we don't put that into practice. We say it in theory, but when you actually go to, we could say, the nitty-gritty of certain Old Testament passages, especially, would say, this is about something else. But we would still believe that the Bible's about Jesus. But actually, what I want to show you is that Stephen, the, the deacon Stephen, actually gives us, I would say, the best sermon ever delivered that shows us exactly that message, exactly that point, that the Bible, all of its 30,000 verses, all of its almost 1,200 chapters, all of its 66 books. They all have one message. They all have one story. They all are gearing towards, intending towards the same thing, the same pattern, the same theme. It's, it's, it's the story of how we could, we could almost quote John 3.16 of how God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that the world through his son might be saved. That's the story of the Bible. And it takes all of, that, all of that history in order to tell that story. This is, if you want to apply like a seminary word to what we're talking about today, this is what's called biblical theology. So you can go out of here and say you're learning what you learn in seminary. Biblical theology is just this idea that the Bible has itself a theology to say. It has itself a story it's trying to put forth. It's trying to unfold. And it's trying to show us exactly how God has woven that story into the fabric of our history itself. And I think that's exactly what Stephen does. So to situate ourselves, Acts chapter 7, Stephen's sermon. He's brought before this tribunal, the council, the Sanhedrin, most of which this council is made up of people who actually were on the council that put Jesus to death, by the way. But the same council of religious leaders and political influencers and all these types of, of, of highbrow individuals, they repeat the same pattern. They, they get this sort of false accusation made against Stephen and then they bring false charges and false witnesses to bring Stephen before this tribunal where he's accused. Well, notice what he's accused of. Acts chapter 6 verse 12, it says, and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him, that Stephen, and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, talking about the temple. And for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Of course, that's 
Not at all what Stephen's been saying, but of course, if you don't believe in the God who Stephen is standing for, then you could probably say these things. So then Stephen is given this opportunity to sort of make his defense, to sort of make his case that, you know, these charges are not true. But what is so fascinating is that he doesn't really make a defense for himself at all. He doesn't actually say, no, you've, you've mistaken, you've gotten these things wrong, you've, heard, you've misheard, these are just rumors, these are not exact, this is not what I've said. Actually, if you look at Stephen's sermon, he doesn't even set out to clear his name at all. Actually, what he goes on to do throughout all of chapter 7 is basically one long-winded, thus says the Lord. Which is just to say that he's trying to show this counsel a council made up of Jewish religious experts. He's trying to show that they've misheard, they've misinterpreted, they've misunderstood their own history. That's why he takes them on a very long and winding history lesson throughout all of Jewish history. That's what he's basically doing. He's saying, if you remember, and he's not just filibustering, he's not just trying to buy time by talking. He's showing them how from the beginning of time till that very moment where Stephen was standing, everything has been unfolding according as God has foreordained. And he's showing them that all of God's purposes, all of God's promises, all of these things are the, are the things that are driving our days. And in fact, you notice what he says there in verse number two. Stephen is talking, he says, Brothers and fathers, hear me, the God of glory. And then notice verse 55, at the very end of his sermon, notice what he says. But he, full, that Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. Was just to say that, the whole theme throughout this is, is Stephen showing how God's glorious purposes and promises are woven into these days of history that are often seen as uncomfortable, often seen as unruly, often seen as disruptive. And Stephen is showing this is all according to the God of glory and his purposes and promises. So what does he do? Well, what we're going to see, and really briefly, I'm going to try and show you how he walks through some very prominent figures of Jewish history to show that very fact. And he begins, most notably, with Father Abraham. Again, verse 2. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And by this, by the way, he's repeating a very familiar pattern that you might note throughout the New Testament happens on several occasions. Whenever a New Testament writer is trying to you know, make a point about the gospel, they will invariably, almost without fail, bring up Abraham. Because he's, uh, along with Moses, one of the most important and one of the most celebrated figures within Hebrew history. Peter does it in Acts chapter 3 at the sermon, uh, at the, the, the next sermon following Pentecost. James does it in James chapter 2. The anonymous writer of Hebrews does it in Hebrews 6 and in Hebrews 7 and in Hebrews 11. Paul does it very prominently in Romans chapter 4 and in Galatians 3 and 4. And then even Jesus himself does it in John chapter 8. Which is just to say, whenever someone is talking about Abraham in a New Testament context, in order to say something about the gospel, our ears ought to perk up. We, are, we ought to really pay attention because they're going to make a significant point about what God's been doing throughout human history. And 
very often they do so by invoking Abraham, so to speak. And he's establishing this point here right away. That God works unilaterally through his people. That he gives them a purpose and a promise. But a, a purpose and a promise that he gives and his people receive. Notice verse 3 as he says, God said to him, says to Abraham, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. So we receive this command of that very famous thing that we often say that Abraham receives. Go, go and just wander till I tell you where you're supposed to stop. And then Abraham follows that command, that command that he receives, verse 4. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. And here we uh, would say, along with James, in James chapter 2, he makes this point, is that this obedience that Abraham demonstrates is him receiving the command of God by faith. And to emphasize that point, Stephen does what? He quotes the Abrahamic covenant. Notice verse 6, and God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, and said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. It's almost a reiteration of what God promises Abraham in Genesis 15, that I will make you a blessing of many nations, and through your children's children's children, you will bless the nations. And even though they don't belong to this land, I will give them this land anyways. Even So he's giving them land, he's giving them a promise of blessing, he's giving them all of these assurances. These are God's promises. Go till I tell you to stop. You will have uh, offspring, even though if you remember, you likely remember the story. Abraham and his wife Sarah are very old, past beyond the age of childbearing. And, and it leads to Sarah laughing at the notion that they could ever have children, laughing at the notion that this promise could come true and then of course what it it does it does come true god is showing them that his promise comes one way from him to people that receive it and that are dependent upon it and this is god's word of promise and again it's just to say what did abraham have to latch on to to know that this promise was true nothing really just god's word that it was true He says, go, and he follows. He says, you will have many nations that come after you, and what evidence did he have? (laughs) Not much. Which is just to say again, that God's people have always been people of faith, have always been a people who are dependent upon a promise. And the the surprising fact is is that God always delivers. It's, It's maybe... It's maybe not surprising to us a lot of times, but it should be. God always delivers on his promises, which is what has driven the people of God throughout history that God has, which is just to say that God will. He always does. Notice verse 8. And he gave him, notice the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. His promises are true. He promised children and there we have Isaac. And we pass over it probably because we're so familiar with it. But that's the assurance that the promise given to Abraham was going to be fulfilled. 
And this is how it's always been from the beginning. And that's how it's always will be. That God's people are words, are people of the word of God's promise. And again, even when that promise is, seems shaky, it seems doubtful, it seems like it can't be true. And what is faith? Hebrews 11.6 is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Abraham didn't have a child when God gave him this promise. And in fact, he gives him this promise. And it wasn't until decades later that that promise was ever fulfilled. (laughs) I think if you do the math, he's roughly like 75 when he receives the first iteration of the promise that you will be a blessed, that you will be blessed with many children as as many as the number of the stars. (laughs) And he's like, I'm already old. And then decades later, God waits even longer. To try to, I think, drive the point home that he is dependent upon God. He's dependent upon God working through him to make this promise sure. Which is to say, from Father Abraham till right now, even in our own day, God's people have always been a people of faith. A people of hanging on, latching on to his promises. And that's what God does. He establishes a people that are dependent upon him, that receive his blessing, that receive his deliverance. And then many times, as he does with Abraham, this is another repeated pattern throughout the scriptures that promises sometimes put to the test. Which brings Stephen to, we could say, the next guy he wants to look at in verses 9 and 10. The, the familiar character of scripture, Joseph. And I think what he does here is he... He shows, he moves on from showing how God brings Abraham to a spot, into a place, gives him a promise. And then here shows how that promise was put into turmoil, put to the test. Notice verse 9, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Joseph's story is a very familiar one, isn't it? He tells his brothers these dreams, these dreams he's seeing, and all these visions, and they get jealous. They are jealous over that. They're jealous over their father's favor towards him and all that kind of stuff, the coat of many colors, all those things. And they sell him into slavery. They lie to their dad. They tell him that Joseph's dead, and Joseph's never heard of again. That is until later on in life, what happens? Famine strikes the land, and the brothers just happen to go to Egypt to inquire of a way to get rations. We need to try and survive. (laughs) And lo and behold, who's the one they talk to? It's their long-lost brother Joseph. It's like a movie. A movie playing out that lo and behold, this guy that they're pleading for mercy for is actually their brother that they sold into slavery. And our natural inclination would be to what? He's going to pound them. He's going to get them. He's going to get his retribution on those guys who sold him. What does he do, actually? It's that beloved word that he says, I think it's in Genesis 50, where he's actually inviting them to come close. Come close to me. It's an invitation for them to once again receive his brotherly love, we could say. And I think just this short little story, this short little rehearsal, we could say, of Joseph's life is a way in which Stephen is showing that God has, is the one who's preserving his word of promise, even when that promise is rejected and put into doubt. If you remember from the story of Joseph... From back in, you know, late Genesis, 
His dreams are what? His dreams are actually prophecies, we could say, of, of, of his brothers bowing before him at his deliverance. Joseph didn't really know that at the time, and perhaps he could have handled himself better than bragging about his dreams to his brothers, because they don't like what these dreams sound like. But the point is what? There was, you can see what's happening in Joseph. There was already in Joseph, in him, in the works, a time in which his brothers would be desperate for Joseph's aid. Which is just to say that, God had already put into Joseph and made it, uh, uh, made it a part of his unfolding purpose that Joseph would be their deliverer. Even in a time in which that desperation wasn't even real or true or present for them, God was already preparing Joseph beforehand to be the one who could deliver them from their desperation. And then by revolting against their brother, these brothers are effectively rejecting God's promise. And what happens? The rest is history. They reject God's promised deliverer, but yet, even though they never anticipated, famine comes, and Joseph's brothers are what put into that time, as it says in um, Acts 7, they are put into that time of great affliction, and they're primed and ready for a helper, and that's what God has been orchestrating the whole time. (laughs) He's been working all of the little intricacies behind the scenes to make it to where the the very desperation that Joseph's brothers never anticipated would be perfectly met in Joseph himself. To where now he's the one who can relieve them, offer them a sign of grace. And this is what his purposes and promises are doing. They're being fulfilled in and through Joseph. Notice verse number 13 in our text of Acts 7. And on the second visit it says... Rehearsing the history, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb in Abraham, uh, that Abraham had bought for some of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem, which is just to say that God is preserving his promises of deliverance, even when that promise is rejected. God's people were stiff-arming that promise. And we see that continuing throughout history. The promises of God are, are, are enduring upon what? Not man's ability, but upon God's own faithfulness. Remember, this, this, we could, uh, this is just you know, extra, by the way. The Genesis 15, who's the one who covenants with Abraham? It's God. And who's the only one who makes the covenant? God. Remember the scene, you know, uh, to make this promise true and sure, we're we're going to cut uh, cut a bull in half and we're going to walk through the carcass. And it's basically a sign that if that if I break this word of covenant, let this be done to me as was done to this bull. And remember, Abraham goes to sleep. And who's the only one that walks through the carcass? The spirit of the Lord. God makes a covenant with himself, so to speak. It's a one-way covenant that his promise is going to be kept upon what? Not man's word, not man's ability, but his own word. From Abraham into Joseph, that word was carried through. Even when his brothers reject his deliverer, God still carries through, delivers them anyways. And this is what brings us again now to verse number 17, where this is most clearly, I think, seen in the person of Moses. Ages pass after Joseph, as it says in verse 17, but as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. 
And of course, we know that throughout all that multiplication, all of the, the favor they had once enjoyed under Joseph disappears from view, from memory. It fades out of their recollections. And then, as it says in verse 18, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph, and he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their inference so that they would not be kept alive. This place of sojourn that just happened to be there under Joseph in Egypt now becomes Israel's place of sorrow. And I think here again, this place of sorrow that now God's people are enduring, this place of horrible uh, sorrow and loss and dejection is another instance, just like the famine, of priming God's people for a deliverer, for a need of deliverance. And such is what God accomplishes. Notice verse 20. And at this time, this time what? At this time of God's people being pushed to the brink. They've been enslaved. They've been treated horribly. Now they are put under sort of the, in the vice grip of Egyptian domination. And what it says, at this time, Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. I like that phrase, though, at the beginning of verse number 20. In this, at this time, we could say at the right time. It's reminiscent of Galatians chapter 4. At the right time, what happened? God sent his son to be born of a virgin, to be born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might become what? The sons and daughters of the Lord. At whose time? God's. At God's right time, he raises up Moses to be the deliverer of his people. And it's all so perfectly and awesomely arranged. (laughs) Because, again, who's raising Moses? God's people's enemies. The very enemies of God's people become the caregivers of the one God had appointed and raised up to deliver God's people. And Moses, just like Joseph, was raised and reared in a world that wasn't his, in a place that didn't belong to him, that was not his home. And yet all the time, what? God is orchestrating everything to where his deliverer would be in the right place at the right time to deliver his people from their place of desperation. He's even still fulfilling all of his purposes and all of his promises in and through Moses. Notice Verse 30, now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will descend you to Egypt. Remember, why is Moses even here? Remember, uh, 40 years prior to this, he murders that Egyptian and those other Hebrews are wondering what he, who he really is. And they're confused about who he is and why he would have such authority. And he, he runs for his life. He flees from that life that he had known. 
And he flees into the wilderness. And he's sojourning there with his uncle. And then suddenly what? God visits, gives him this message, this calling. Go back. Go back and deliver your people. Go back and be the one that I have raised you up to be. The one through whom deliverance was going to come to my people. Which leads to verse 35. This Moses whom the Hebrews originally rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This very same man, this same Moses, God sent as both a ruler and, notice, a redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man, Moses, led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Which is just to say, if you didn't get it before, here it is again. God always delivers on his promises. He's always faithful in what he says he will do. Even when his people reject that deliverance, reject that promise, what happens? He affects deliverance anyways. Even through the one that he has raised up. And this has been his pattern. Stephen has shown it, I think, and you can see it throughout. You can almost overlay this pattern throughout the history of the Old Testament. That God gives his people a promise. That promise is rejected by God's people. But what happens? God fulfills that promise anyways. You can see this through the law. Stephen then takes them through that, through the law. But then in verse 44, Stephen addresses one of their accusations. Remember what they accused him of? That, you know, he's talking about uh, destroying the temple, which is just a silly thing to be accused of. Because if you remember what Stephen and what Jesus himself had even said, that's not at all what they were talking about. But here, notice verse 44, because now Stephen addresses that very same accusation. He says, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. Just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it with Joshua, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the land, the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David. And he's saying here what? That that God's people had this place called the tent of witness or the tabernacle. That tabernacle that was set up and torn down all throughout those days of Israel's wandering and all their days of of going through the wilderness. It's this place where God's people worshipped. And they had all through the days of David, and it says, all the way till Solomon, verse 46, who found in favor the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. And then God people had what? The temple But I love what Stephen calls this tabernacle or temple. It's the same basic structure. The temple is just the more permanent version of the tabernacle. But what does he call it? He calls it in verse 44, the tent of witness. And what is it witnessing? What is the the tabernacle witnessing to? What is the temple a witness to? Well, Stephen answers that, verse 48. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands... As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? He's quoting, by the way, Isaiah 66 right there. And he's demonstrating, I think, what? That the tabernacle and the temple, those places that people had, were always meant to be witnesses of one thing. 
the presence of God's promise. If you go, you don't have to go there, but in 1 Kings chapter 8, that's essentially where this thought is borne out most, uh, most sort of explicitly. That this is a witness that the promises of God that have been given to all of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of the ones, all the way down, have always been true. Which means they, they always will be true. And that place, that tabernacle, was a, was a place that was meant to direct all of God's people and their attention to the giver of that promise. And his presence for them. It was, a, it was an enduring, it was a, it, was a, it was a place that endured as a sign that God's promises are sure. They are as permanent as this building. <laughs> you can see why God's people would have been shaken when the temple was destroyed. Because it was a sign that it, it appeared to be that God's promises were being shaken. That temple was a place, that, that tabernacle was a place of such significance for them. It was a place of God's promise, of God's presence. It wasn't just about the bricks and the mortar and the gold and the, all of the filigrees that, that, that Solomon put into that place that made it significant. It was the place of God's promise and his promises still being true for his people. And even what? Even after God's people rejected him. As you know from the rest of the history of the Old Testament, God's people wandered even as they were settled in the land of promise. What? They start going after idols. They start going after false gods. They start going after other things. They still had the temple still persisting as the place. God's promises are still true. And what? They didn't want to hear. They didn't want to listen. Prophet after prophet says what? Go back to Yahweh's word. Go back to the place of Yahweh's promise. Go back to the place where Yahweh has given you all of these things and he's still wanting to make them true. And God's people were always rejecting him. And yet what do we have? The temple of witness. Witnessing to the fact that God had not abandoned them. That God had not forgotten them. Even when it's rebuilt. It's rebuilt and then it becomes what? It becomes a structure that's more important than what it represented. Which brings Stephen to his kill shot in verse 51. As he says, you stiff-necked people. Uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You, who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. He's saying to him, what? You're repeating in the same pattern that I've just been trying to explain to you. You've rebelled against God's promises, rebelled against God's raised up deliverer and rescuer. You've rejected him. And yet God is seeing fit to execute his purposes anyways. Because by murdering Jesus, the council was, yes, repeating and continuing that long line of history that the prophets of God were, were dismissed and rejected. But even what? Even their betrayal, even their murder of God's promised deliverer couldn't make God's promises untrue. Because what was he doing even as he was being betrayed and murdering? He was working out his people's deliverance. <laughs> even as Jesus was being rejected, he was working out the forgiveness of the world's sins. 
It's just like Joseph. It's just like Abraham. It's just like Moses. When God's people reject God's promise, God is still working out his promise anyways. He's still making it true that his word is always true. He's still making it so blatantly and patently obvious. My words endure forever. Regardless of man's rebellion. Regardless of man's sort of seeming rejection. God's promises are still true. You see, we could, we could go there, but in John, 9, John chapter 2, what does Jesus say? He says, I am, uh, he says, well, I'll just go there instead of trying to quote it and mess it all up. Uh, John 2 verse 19 is, is sort of the point that I think here that Stephen is referencing. John two nineteen. what does Jesus say? He says this, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then John, the apostle, adds this. He says, the Jews then said it has been taken 46 years to build this temple. And will he raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he raised, he was raised from the dead, and his disciples remembered that he had said this. And then they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Whereas the people in Abraham's day had just what? Just had a word. A word of promise. In the people of Joseph's day, they just had a word of promise. In the, in the people of David's day, they had that place of promise. The temple, the tabernacle. In Jesus' day, what? They had the person of the promise. And we as well. We have this person who stands as the everlasting sign that God's promises are true. That they will always be true and that he is always fulfilled on his promises. That's what we have in the person of Jesus. And you can see it happen. And I'll, I'll, I'll close in just a second. But you can see it happen right there in Acts, at the end of Acts 7. Because what's going on? Stephen has refuted all their accusations he's brought the people into he's basically stirred up this mob and he he cuts them to the quick as it says there and he causes them to go into a rage they hate what he has said they've just been called murderers so i don't think anyone would like that but they also have just been made to see that they've totally misconstrued all of their own history and so much so they they hate him so much That they decide to silence him. Verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. You get that image of a toddler plugging their ears with their hands. And it says, and they rushed together at Stephen. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, what is Stephen doing? He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen is there as showing us, I think, exactly what it means and what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus in a time of commotion. When our lives are on the line, what is he doing? He is looking into heaven, verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw what? The glory of God. And what did he know? And what was the sign of the glory of God? Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. The very one that was murdered, executed and buried. 
after dying on a cross, is here seen by Stephen to be standing in glory, which I think is a very demonstrable sign as Stephen witnesses that the glory of God's purposes and promises was still being gonna, was still going to be carried out in that day. It was still true. He was enthroned in the heavens. As it says in Revelation, he was as the lamb standing though as slain. The one by whom all things were going to be perfectly worked out for God's people's good and God's own glory. Every single time God's deliverance is rejected, he works that deliverance out just as he promises. He's always faithful to his word in spite of us. That's the story of the Bible in a nutshell. Is that even when God's people stumble and fall and fall into despair and fall into sin, what? God works out the deliverance anyways. This is a story that he shows throughout the scriptures, throughout all of these pages of history. These aren't Aesop's fables. A little lesson with a little moral that you can apply to your life. This is the unfolding of God's purposes throughout history. That he's working out this in a way that doesn't seem possible. I still, I'll just confess here this morning. I still don't know what God was trying to work out through that year, a couple of years ago, through COVID. <laughs> Who knows what he was trying to do through that? And maybe we won't know till we get to glory. Or maybe we won't know till a couple of years from now. And then we go, oh, wow, look at what he was working out. Joseph could have never imagined what God was trying to do through all those years of being lost and exiled and put into slavery and put into subjection. And yet what, God, what was God working out? The perfect execution of his promises. The perfect execution of his word. That's the story of the scriptures. That's who Jesus is. He is the emblem. He is the everlasting sign to you and to me that God's purposes and promises are true no matter what the circumstances may be, no matter how much disarray we may feel or disruption or upheaval we may be undergoing, no matter even how much sin we have, God's promises are true and sure in who? In Christ alone. What does it say in the Corinthian letters? That in Jesus, he is the yes and amen of all of God's promises. He is that stamp of approval, that seal, that God's words are true. No matter what man may say. And we have that same word. And that's the great, awesome uh, sort of task we have now too. As it says in John 9, it, remember, or John chapter 2, that verse I read that, you know, uh, that Jesus were, were, was referring to the temple of his body. And then it says the disciples remembered this after the resurrection. After the resurrection, what happens? You have that, my favorite chapter, Luke 24, that scene of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they are made and they're, they're shown what? From Beginning, it says, beginning with Moses and all through the prophets, Jesus does what? He shows them the things concerning himself. And then it says, even later on, well, I'll just read it. Luke chapter 24, verse 44, and then I'll close, I, I promise. Luke 24, 44, so after the amazed disciples, they come and they, they, they say, we saw Jesus on the road, but we didn't know it was him, but until after the fact... <clears throat> 
And then eventually, those same two disciples are with the original apostles. And then what happens? Jesus comes into the room. And then Jesus says what? These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then what? Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. You want to understand the Bible most truly? You'll see it as what? As tending towards the yes and amen of all of God's promises. This is what I think supercharged the apostles. What's the only difference between Peter, the denier, and Peter, the establisher of the church? The resurrection. And the fact that he now understands what it was all about. It was like a light bulb moment for all of God's followers. This is what you've been doing. And that's the same thing that we get to encourage and instill in the young minds that we get to teach. In the, in the churches that I get to preach to in my own church. My overriding thrust of all that I try to do is show them that Jesus is the yes and amen. This is always what God has been tending towards. And as long as we have that sure word of God's promise and who Jesus is, we have assurance of our faith. This is what God's been doing. This is what he's always been doing. He's been steadying and stabilizing his church through what? His glorious purposes and promises that sometimes seem in doubt, but in Christ, they are always sure. Let us pray.